Hello and welcome back to Painting the Corners and our brand new Top 10 Right Now series. We've covered relievers and right fielders and now we are moving on to center fielders. We got a premium defensive position this time that changes the calculus a little bit. Um, but of course, plenty of really, really excellent hitters as well, including the guy who has been the best hitter in baseball for the past decade or so in Mike Trout, of course. So whether we think he still holds the crown of top center fielder in the game remains to be seen, but we will get into all that and more in this episode. So let's get into it. So like Johnny alluded to, we got our premium defensive position, first one on the board here. Um, really excited to kind of dive into this one as, like he mentioned, you know, the calculus may be a little bit different, but, you know, how do you weigh that? It's a tough question to determine, and a lot of it can be personal preference or, you know, you can always somehow put it in a model and, and see what that model can do, but at the end of the day, you got to look at both statistics and kind of what the eye test tells you a little bit when it comes to these premium defensive positions, I, f- I feel like. Um, I'm kind of curious, though, Johnny, do you weigh eye tests at all with certain things like this? Or are you fully statistic-based? I am fully statistic-based, but I will say this. I do have a bit of a preference when it comes to defensive metrics. And for outfielders, I like... OAA outs above average more than DRS. So I weight that two to one to OAA in my defense calculations for outfielders. For infielders, I think it's probably a bit more even, but for catchers, I only use DRS because DRS includes framing runs and OAA does not. Although, of course, that may become defunct in the next few years with the advent of RoboUMPs, but we're not there yet. So that's still something that you have to keep in mind. Uh, But yeah, for the outfielders, I like outs above average better. I think that does a better job of encapsulating an outfielder's total value because it tracks where they were, when the ball was hit, how hard it was hit at what angle. So basically how long the outfielder has to get to the ball and make the catch before it hits the ground. Um, Whereas DRS is really just kind of using an aggregate sample and just kind of guessing that each fielder got, you know, so many hard plays and so many easy plays. And that's obviously, you know, not as accurate. So I leaned more towards the outs above average stat. I think it's funny too, because we always talk about center field as the premium defensive outfield position. But if you talk to a lot of guys who have played the outfield professionally, collegiately, um, whatever it may be, they're going to say center field might be the easiest one to play. A lot of that has to do with the fact that you're not dealing with weird angles and the ball's usually coming straight at you or just to your left or just to your right. But I think it's kind of funny how, given the premium we put on defensive center fielders, the athleticism that you have to have, it's pretty universally considered an easier defensive position than that of right or left. Well, yeah, I mean, it might be easier, but it's easier for the guys that already have the speed to be a center fielder, you know, like it requires so much of you to even be like considered as a center fielder that, you know, once you have that speed and that athleticism, yeah, you don't really need the arm 
you don't need, I guess, to take great routes if you have good speed, but obviously that helps too. Yeah, I mean, all three outfield positions are a little different. Right field, you need the bigger arm. Um, center field, you need more speed. And left field is probably the weakest of the three defensively. But, you know, they all have their challenges. Oh, they certainly do. So as we kind of get into getting to this top 10 list for center fielders, John, did you find that this one was easier or harder than right field for you? Because it feels like you, you were talking about him earlier than the the prowess of Mike Trout. Um, and maybe that makes him an easy number one because of name value. But I'm wondering, was it an easy top 10 list for you to make? Well, there is no easy or hard, only numbers. Um, but no, it was, um, it wasn't too surprising. I'll put it that way. The right fielders took me off guard a little bit. We talked about it in that episode, of course, with Tatis and where to put him and all that kind of stuff. No, this was a, a fairly, fairly chalky list. I would say it's pretty much how I would have drawn it up in my head. Yeah. So it's funny how you mentioned the, you know, the stats don't lie, you know, that whole argument. And, and I totally agree. That's how I had done my relief pitching list as well as my right fielders list. I, looked at the statistics, put together the list, and then revealed who the players were behind those statistics afterwards. And whether I was shocked or not really didn't affect much. And I also had something, and we had talked about this previously, where I was weighting the previous two seasons equally. And I would like to kind of come out and say this. I did the same thing again this this time for center fielders. I weighed them both evenly. However, after I came up with my list and I revealed who the names were, I then put their statistics from just last year next to their names. So if there was a huge, massive discrepancy between, you know, maybe I had someone at 10 who was just barely better than the number 11 guy, and I look at last year's stats only, and the guy at 11 had a great year or, you know, well above average year, and the guy at 10 had a terrible year, might have been the worst on the list. I allowed myself to kind of uh, adjust the list based off of that. So I kind of took some some of what Johnny was saying about how he weighted his list. And while I don't use a formula myself, I wanted to somehow make it a little bit more fair to to weigh last year. And that's kind of how I came up with doing it. So we'll see if, uh, if my list is a little bit more fairly represented of last year. Um, I, guess, I guess it's up to the viewers to decide that. But yeah, I just thought I'd throw that out there real quick. All right. Thank you very much. Should we get into the list? Let's do it. I went first last time, so... I think that's your turn to start us off. All right. And as we were talking about this being a, a defensive premium position, we're going to start off my list with two guys who are certainly glove first outfielders. They came in at 11th and 12th offensively on my board, but third and fourth defensively. And that was enough to sneak them into the top 10. So at number 10 of the Houston Astros, Chaz McCormick, who made obviously the catch of his life, in games, Game 5 of the World Series uh, against the Phillies. Still not really a household name, despite his prominence in the postseason uh, for the World Series winning Astros, but developed into a really, really solid defensive outfielder. Uh, still got a little ways to go offensively, but he was approaching league average production this year, so that's pretty solid for a center fielder with, with elite defense. So that was enough to land him at the number 10 spot. At number nine, another guy who had a big postseason, and this coming off of a really bad regular season, and I was a little surprised to see him make this list, but again, as with McCormick, the defense carries in center field. Um, I waited 
my defense uh, only I weighted it two to one towards offense over defense. And you'll remember if you listen to the right fielders one, I weighted that one three to one in favor of offense. So that extra defensive value is uh, definitely showing itself here. So at number nine, I have Trent Grisham. And I know you're going to be shocked to find a guy who hit 184 last year in the top 10, but I have my reasons. Okay. Uh, Well, we can, we can discuss that when we, when we uh, combine our lists and and talk about that afterwards, but he's at number nine at number eight, um, a guy who really was supposed to be a big offensive weapon, but hasn't really developed all the way into what scouts and his team thought that he would be. um, And that would be Luis Robert. I was a little surprised to see him fall to number eight, but when you look at the names ahead of him, I can definitely understand it. He's got all the tools, and that's what makes him so tantalizing. Uh, the White Sox gave him, I think, $60 million before he'd even played a major league game because they really believed in um, his body and his tools and his makeup. He's been a productive major leaguer, don't get me wrong. I mean, eighth on the top 10 center fielders list is nothing to shake your stick at. But last year, a couple of years ago at this time, we were thinking he would be a perennial top three on this list. Uh, and that hasn't come to fruition yet. Obviously, there's still time. He's still super young. I think 25 or 26 now. All right. Now on to number seven. One of the guys this year who absolutely burst onto the scene for the Atlanta Braves, and that would be Michael Harris, came in and took over that center field job immediately when he came up. Didn't let it go. Only played about two-thirds of the season. But, man, I mean, he really was on fire the whole time. There are definitely some concerns with his approach, uh, he let, walked less than 5% of the time in the major leagues, which is a big red flag, struck out more than average as well. And he did hit into some pretty significant batted ball luck. So that kind of limits his ceiling here at number seven. But obviously with another season like he had last year, he would certainly vault up that list. Yeah, just the, the projectability is a little questionable right now. Wouldn't be surprised to see him take a little half step back next year. Okay, on to number six, Brian Reynolds, currently of the Pirates, whether he stays a Pirate through the rest of the year, um, yet to be determined. We know he's requested a trade, but nothing's happened yet on that front. He was the worst defensive center fielder in our list of 15 here provided by MLB Network. So that kind of kept him from rising too much, even though he was the fifth best offensive center fielder. Compare that to the guy who's right in front of him, Cedric Mullins, who is kind of lumped in with Reynolds. Both guys have been named as trade candidates over the last few years, although looks more and more likely like the O's are going to hold on to Mullins now. Uh, He was the eighth best offensive player, but sixth best on defense. So he comes out at number five overall. And then now into the top four, um, really getting to the elite, elite center fielders. We've got from the New York Mets, Brandon Nimmo, he's been hanging around this list towards the maybe 7-8 range for the last few years, but uh, really turned it up this year. Came in as the third best offensive player. Not a great center fielder, not really a true center fielder. You'd probably rather play him in a corner, but the Mets are going to keep him there for at least the next couple years. Just sign him to a big contract, and uh, he's serviceable. He's not going to you know lose you games out there, so... Um, Yeah, but that kind of limits him to number four. And then once you get up into the top three, it's, man, 
superstar level. So at number three, making his debut this year for the Seattle Mariners, we got the J-Rod show, Julio Rodriguez, lit Seattle on fire, led him to the postseason, of course, for the first time since 2001. Absolutely monstrous season, 2020 season. I think it was 25-25, actually, homers and steals. Really just came out swinging. Um, well, actually, he didn't. He had, a, he had a tough first month, which makes his overall numbers even more impressive because they are incredibly good. And uh, to b- re- bounce back from that first tough month and uh, really play, play play really well down the stretch, uh, certainly impressive for a young kid like that. He comes in at number three, and you know there's not that much room in front of him, but I could still see him moving up in the next couple of years. All right. At number two, and this one might be you know a little controversial just because he's a guy who can't seem to stay on the field, and of course I'm talking about Byron Buxton of the Twins, signed to a hundred and something hundred and eighty million dollar extension I think a couple of years ago from the Twins. He stayed on the field, you know, to his to his level, you know, pretty much as as well as we've seen him over the last you know five six years last year played about 130 games and, you know, played really well. He didn't play as well as he did in 2021 when he only made about a month or two of the season, but, you know, still showed that he's an absolutely elite defensive center fielder. He was the number one defensive center fielder uh, in my list and he was fourth on offense. So that landed him at number two. And of course that means that Mike Trout retains his crown he is the number one center fielder in baseball right now, according to me. It's not a huge margin over Buxton. It's really not, but it's a margin nonetheless. And we're all, of course, hoping that he can play all 150, 155 games next year and uh, put up another Troutian season of old. All right, that's my list. Hit me with yours. Yeah, um, our lists definitely differ. That's for sure. I uh, we're definitely going to have some some discussions about how we're going to figure out our communal list, especially towards the bottom half here, because they're definitely different. So let's uh, let's kick it off here um, with my number ten, who was not on your list, and that would be over in San Francisco, Mike Yastrzemski. You know, wow. he was a guy who originally missed my list. He was not there. Um, until I came and looked at just last year's stats and looking at a couple guys, and that would be uh, Enrique Hernandez and Trent Grisham, who are arguably two of the worst hitters in the entire sport last year. No matter how good both of those guys are on defense, there was no no world in which I could stomach putting them on a list. So I wasn't I, I physically moved Yaz in front of both of those guys because the one thing that Yastrzemski has done at least last year was at least probably provide some above slightly above league average production at the plate. And, you know, if you're looking at just F four, both of the, uh, all the three of those guys are kind of in the same, same realm there over the last two years combined. So for me, I go Yaz at 10 number nine for me was Chaz McCormick. So we, we were similar on that one. I know you had him at number 10. So yeah, I had Chaz McCormick. Um, number eight for me was Luis Robert as uh, you had as well. So they're, we're at a consensus for sure. Now, here's where I definitely have uh, a gripe with you a little bit. 
even more so than the Trent Grisham edition. I have Cedric Mullins at number seven. And the reason I say I have more of a gripe, I know you had him at five. I don't know how you had him at five. I'll, I'll, we'll have to obviously talk more about that one. Uh, number six is where I put Michael Harris, the second. Uh, I felt like that was a fair spot. I, I, there's definitely some concerns there with that strikeout rate, like you said, uh, and especially the walk rate. But hopefully you can kind of improve both of those as he goes into his second season there in Atlanta. Number five, I had Brian Reynolds, one of the better switch hitting players in the entire sport at this point. Really good over there in Pittsburgh. And there's a reason that all the good teams have been linked to trying to trade for him this offseason. So really solid there. And I had him coming in at number five. And I won't spend too much time on my top four because it's the same as yours. I had Brandon Nimmo at four, Julio Rodriguez at three, Buxton at two, and Trout as a clear number one. Though, like you kind of mentioned, Buxton, I think, is a little bit underrated at times. Obviously, the health is an issue. But when he's on the field, my goodness, does he produce. And the defense is elite, elite. So, you know, he's paced Trout in war, and they've played about the same amount of games the last two years. So there is something to say with Buxton. And obviously, Trout's defense is nothing to you know, write home about. So that probably hurts Trout a little bit in the F4 category, because I know they like defense over there at Fangraphs. But... Uh, yeah, that's that's my top 10, and and I'm sticking to it, Johnny. I'm not changing my mind. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got to convince me why Yastrzemski deserves to be on the list. And don't don't tell me that Grisham doesn't. Just, uh, just tell me why Yastrzemski does, does belong on the list. Okay, so here's why Yastrzemski belongs on the list. Over the last, and this is just the last two years, uh, not last year. Given the last two years, uh, we're looking at a 10% walk rate and a 40% hard hit rate. Two things that I really value in terms of just a floor, just a basic floor level offensively. I think those two things allow for a really high floor. Then you kind of look at, you know, the offensive production is just slightly above league average. Um, the ba- He's a good base runner, though it doesn't really you know, matter too much. And the defense... Nothing right about. I understand. Not the greatest defender in the world, but I can definitely tell based on your list that you weighted defense more than I did. Because while I do appreciate the the importance of defense at the center field position, and and I did, it did affect some of my rankings more so than did right field. I definitely didn't weight it at a two to one scale. It, for me, it was probably more of like a three, three and a half scale. I just am a firm believer that offense is so significantly more important than hitting at any position. So I feel like I probably weigh offense a little bit more than you in comparison to defense. But yeah, I mean, you're looking at a guy who put up four and a half ward the last two years. All the guys under him, there's only one guy who had more war of the last two years, and that was Harrison Bader. So for me, given that I think all these guys were close, I just like the floor of Yastrzemski. And given the fact that last year he didn't, he didn't blow the, the cover off the baseball by any mean for the whole season he just hit a little bit more consistently and didn't hit under 200 yeah i mean i don't know i do weight defense more for sure and it's more so like you know if you're a a serviceable center fielder then you know you just have to be pretty decent offensively and you're fine but if you're a bad center fielder and he's, he's really not a good center fielder, he really should be in a corner and he was in a corner. He's only playing center field because the giants don't have a warm body to put in center field. And so if you're a bad center fielder, you've really got to be a good, really good offensive player, I think to make this list. And he's just not, I mean, yeah. Okay. He takes his walks, 
but he still only put up a 99 WRC plus last year below league average. And he was at what? 105 the year before that, you know, he's a decent base runner, but he's not going to hit for average. He's not apparently going to hit for that much power. We thought he was going to, but that kind of dried up after 2020. He's just an, a league average hitter. And I'm not really willing to put a league average hitter on my center field list when he's a bad defensive center fielder. Yeah, and, and like I said, the reason I had Yastrzemski on there was honestly not because I was excited about Mike Yastrzemski, and I, and I totally agree that the defense is not there. But at some point, you know, not comparing, you know, the Grisham or, or Kike Hernandez to, a, to an Austin Hedges type, but at some point, you have to be at least adequate enough with the bat for me to be able to prove that defense even matters. And while I agree center field defense is more important than a lot of things uh, or a lot of defensive positions on the field, uh, Trent Grisham over the last two years, his OPS is below 700 and last year was even worse than that. So if I'm waiting last year, a little bit more, he's not even remotely close. And if anything, if anything, I'd put Kike Hernandez over Trent Grisham, given the fact that two years ago, Kike was a beast. He would be an easy top 10 guy. He'd probably be in the seven to five range. So I don't know. I I would honestly have more of a understanding if you were arguing Enrique to me, um, because him and Grisham had very similar down years last year. Uh, I think Kike was definitely worse, but I don't know. Trent Grisham, just on my list, he was second to last. He wasn't even remotely close to the top 10 for me. So that that's why I guess I have I have trouble with the Grisham one uh, as opposed to other defensive guys like Kike and even Harrison Bader who rates out as a pretty elite defender. Yeah, I did I did wonder where you had Bader. He's 11 for me. Just comes in after McCormick. He was just really not a not a great hitter over the last 2 years, so that limited his value even though he came in at number 2 defensively. Yeah, second best defensively, second worst offensively. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really think any of these guys deserves to be on here, but we have to put one of them. I agree. I know you didn't look at this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw your attention to... I know you didn't look at this stat because you're always uh, over at Fangraphs, but I did incorporate uh, Baseball References O-War stat. Um, and of course, since it's war, nobody really knows what gets baked into that pie. But over the last two years, in 2021, Mikey Stremski had a 1.80 war and Grisham was at 2.5. And this year it was 1.5 for Stremski and 1.7 for Grisham. So even though he's had the lower OPS, he brings value on offense with his base running. He also has, well, they both have solid walk rates, but... I don't know. He, for some reason, baseball reference seems to think that he is bringing more offensive value than Yastrzemski. Which I just find very interesting. Because like you said, the walk rates are the same. The strikeout rates are the same. Yastrzemski hits the ball harder, more consistently. He has a lower BABIP, so you could argue that he's even more unlucky than Grisham. And the OPS is 50 points higher. WRC Plus is 10 points higher over the last two years. I, yeah, I do, obviously I don't know how OR is calculated, and it might be a little bit more, you know, home run savvy than than I include because I don't really look at home runs, and I know you don't probably either. But 
Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting to me. Just given given what I'm looking at in front of me right here, I don't know what what could sway that with Grisham. I will say this. With Trent Grisham, and this isn't me being a biased Potter fan, I do prefer him over Yastrzemski next year, uh, just given the potential. But at the same time, Grisham's floor is really low. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, what I was going to say is it seems like he hit his floor last year because it's just about as bad as you can do as a hitter that has that kind of walk rate. You know, if you're if you're Austin Hedges and you're just swinging at anything, um, yeah, you can get into that, you know, 50s WRC plus range. But if you're Grisham will always be taking his walks and so will Yastrzemski too. And so they're going to be they're going to have some floor that's not completely unreasonable. But the thing for me is Yastrzemski's floor is significantly lower because he has no defensive value. He has negative defensive value and Grisham has significant positive defensive value. He's won back-to-back gold gloves or I guess two out of the last three gold gloves. Not that that, you know, gold glove should really be taken seriously, but you know, he, he is clearly an elite defensive center fielder and that raises his floor a lot more than Yastrzemski's. I think we spent enough time trying to debate who we should put at number 10. We got to come to consensus here. You already told me you want Grisham next year over Yastrzemski. So yeah, but not on my list. Well, what's the list for then? I've, I'd feel more comfortable putting one of our guys who we both had at 11 and 12 than freaking Trent Grisham. If you wanted to put Kike or Bader at 10, I could stomach it. But Grisham literally was I'll almost the worst Bader. guy on my list. Bader? I can, I can agree with you on Bader. I don't love it. Number 10 sucks. This is the worst number 10 on any list. He also went off in the postseason. Yeah, that's true. What is up with that? That's like three of the three of the guys that are like right at the bottom of our list were just had like insane postseasons. Yeah, no, it's crazy. So are you good with putting the other guy at number nine, Chaz McCormick, Mister Postseason Hero? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that fits. I think that tracks. I should probably say uh, World Series Hero, uh, but yeah, nonetheless, an insane catch. Obviously, Luis Robert, we both had at eight, so that's an easy one there. Um, number yeah. seven is where, again, I had a big issue, uh, with yours, uh, not because of who you had at seven. I, I don't think having Michael Harris at seven more so where you put Mullins and we have the same five, six, seven, and that's pretty much where our last debate comes into play because we have the same top four and that's pretty much a consensus there. So I need you to sell me mostly Cedric Mullins over Brian Reynolds. Okay. Well, I can tell already why your list is how it is because Reynolds comes in at fifth best offensively and Mullins at eighth best offensively. And I know you're weighting offense more heavily than I am. And Reynolds is the worst defender in my list. And Cedric Mullins is at sixth best. So I can tell already why we have a discrepancy here. And that's just kind of a philosophical discrepancy, but I don't know. What's your concern here? Is your concern that Reynolds is just too good of a hitter? to be at six or is your concern that Mullins is too bad of a hitter to be at seven? So my, yeah, my more concern is not Mullins. It's, it's the Reynolds because I think Reynolds is night and day above Mullins and, and not night and day above Harris per se, but because Harris has only done it for a year, it's tough for me to say that he's better than Reynolds. But in terms of Mullins, I think Reynolds is a night and day better hitter. Uh, Mullins obviously had that one breakout year, but other than that, it's not like he's, been a you know an elite hitter 
and not saying that Reynolds is an elite hitter, but if there's a tier below that, I believe he's in that. I'm a huge Brian Reynolds guy, and the statistics for me continue to back that up. He hits the ball a lot harder than Mullins. He walks more. He strikes out less. Excuse me, he does not strike out less. He strikes out slightly more, but he doesn't hit the ball as hard. Uh, the OPS for Reynolds over the last two years combined, and, and this is a real big thing for me, the OPS over the last two years combined for Brian Reynolds is 62 points higher. So that's pretty significant. And when you're looking at it, I get that the defense for Brian Reynolds is bad. I get he's a left fielder. He's not a center fielder. I completely agree on that end. But when the OPS is that significantly different, plus Brian Reynolds, when you look at his you know, scope of his career over the last even three, four, five years, he has been a steady, really, 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 really good hitter where Mullins came onto the scene really hot. And then he's just kind of coasted at a great hitter, but he's not in a not in the same echelon for me as Brian Reynolds. And while I do love Mullen's defense, don't get me wrong, I just don't see a world where he's a better player than Brian Reynolds. All right. Well, I will say Re- Reynolds did have a terrible 2020 season, but that's you know, we can write that off probably. So if I'm looking over the last two years, 2021, they both had great years. 136 weighted runs created plus for Mullins, 141 for Reynolds. Pretty, pretty equal. And then if we're looking at this year, yeah, there is a fairly big difference. It's 125 for Reynolds and 106 for Mullins. Although I, I do agree with you about Mullins kind of bursting onto the scene in 2021. He did have that that big year, 136 WRC+. plus, But last year was only 106. And yeah, that's good. But I'm not completely sure that he's going to take that huge step back up to that you know 130s, 140s range where Reynolds was, or even 125, where Reynolds was this year. His walk rate is pretty low. It's at 7% this year. It was only at 8.7 2021. So it's not a huge indicator of, of sustained success there. He is a good base runner. He does make a lot of contact. All right. I, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be willing to put Mullins below Reynolds. So are you going to put Reynolds at 5? Is that okay with you? Yes. Okay, because now I need to try to spend a little time convincing you why I think Michael Harris is better than Mullins, because I got one done. I don't know if I can get this one, and and we'll see. But here's my quick little argument. I won't spend too much time on it. Um, obviously, you mentioned the concerns of Harris with the walk and strikeout rate, and I agree with you. They are bad. Mullins' walk rate, nothing to write home about, like you just mentioned. It's only at a 7% walk rate over the last two years. Um, and I fully anticipate Michael Harris having an uptick in walk rate and a downtick in K rate. Mullins does have a pretty good K rate, so I give him credit there. In terms of hard hit percentage, though, because I think that's important to consider as well, Michael Harris had a 45% hard hit percentage. This is, of course, just last year. Cedric Mullins over the last two years combined is at a 37%. So I think it's fair to say that at least in a year sample size, Michael Harris hits the ball a little bit harder. There is a lot of bad bit luck, though, with Harris, and I do agree with you on that. Yeah. The OPS is a solid 50 points higher. The WRC plus is 15 points higher. Obviously that's a little bit skewed given the fact that Harris has only played one year. I think Harris is a little bit better of a defender, but that's that at the end of the day, that's why I think Harris is better. I just think he has a little bit higher of a ceiling than Mullins does at this point, but I'm not fully convinced that he is better than Mullins today at this point in time for a top 10 now list. Yeah, I certainly won't argue that he has a higher ceiling. Absolutely not. I have him as a slightly worse defender, uh, almost equal though. Actually, they came in at sixth and seventh defensively in my sample, and I have Harris as a better offensive player. The thing that's holding him back is 
is the volume and the projectability because I'm really, really not convinced that he will sustain this production. I would be pretty shocked, honestly, if he runs back another uh, 136 WRC plus next year. Just for reference, Steamer projects a 110 WRC plus for Harris, which is still good, but not nearly what it was last year. You know, yeah, he does a lot of things well. Obviously, you can't you can't put up a 136 WRC plus without doing a lot of things well. But yeah, the 361 BABIP really scares me. I don't, there's no way, well, maybe there is a way, but I don't know how to really adjust that WRC plus to say, okay, you know, if you, if you only got your fair share of luck and you weren't plus 37 points of BABIP, what kind of season would you have put up? I don't really know how to quantify that, but that is a pretty big gap. Whether it's enough to say that he would have been a worse hitter than Mullins or that he will be next year, I'm not sure. But in this case where the players are fairly similar, I tend to lean towards the guy who's had the longer track record. Yeah, and it's funny. The more you talk and the more I look at the statistics, while I do like Harris as of last year better, obviously I don't think anyone would argue against that. Given the lucky nature of some of the statistics that are a little bit more predictive, I will succeed, and I'm okay with putting Harris at 7 and Mullins at 6, especially since you gave me Mr. Reynolds there. All right. We can have some trading going on. Boy, I will say, though, I messed with my list a little bit. Um, So for our listeners, you uh, know if you listened to the last one, I consider offense, defense, and volume. Uh, those are really the three components that go into my rankings. And the calculations for each of those don't change between positions, but I do change the ratios that they're weighted for the total score for each player because, as I said, I, I weight defense differently at different positions. But I also messed with the volume in center field because, you know, you look down the list, okay, Trout missed a bunch of time last year or in, in uh, 2021. Buxton missed a bunch of time in 2021 julio just debuted this year harris just debuted this year like a lot of these guys have just missed a bunch of time and so i was kind of forced to weigh the volume a little less heavily for center fielders and you'll be glad i did because harris originally came in at number nine (laughs) and i'm sure you would have had some serious words about that Yeah, I think I would have so. Uh, but I, I mean, I, technically, I'm starting to do the same too. I think it's it's okay to have a little bit of leeway and flexibility in how we do our list. They don't have to be perfect robots. So uh, yeah, with that said, let's kind of see how we did in comparison to MLB Network's top 10 right now. And at number one, no doubt they had Mike Trout, as did we. And I'll quickly kind of skim through one through four because... Just like you are in my personal list and the list we came up with together, the one through four is the same. It seems like a consensus that it's going to be Mike Trout, Byron Buxton, Julio Rodriguez, and Brandon Nimmo as your top four. And now as we kind of get into the number five range, this is where there's definitely some discrepancy between not only you're in my list, but the list we came up with together. Because at number five for MLB Network, they had Michael Harris II. No doubt an aggressive ranking. And that's really what it is. I just think that's an overly aggressive ranking for a guy like that who played one year with obvious luck, factors that can't be ignored. And then 
Quickly going into number six, that's where they had Brian Reynolds. Number seven, Cedric Mullins. So they technically still had the same five, six, seven we did. Uh, number eight, they totally agreed with us. They went with Luis Robert. So that was good to see. Mm-hmm. And number nine, they had my boy, Mike Yastrzemski. Number nine. Coming oh, in Not even number 10. So, so you know, MLB wow. Network knows what's up. That's what I'm saying. And then at number 10 was someone who we both had on our list and who you had at number 10 as well, Chaz McCormick. So, like I said, no Trent Grisham. No Harrison Bader either. I guess the the main thing for me that I notice is Mike Yastrzemski at nine. I, I definitely think it's a little aggressive over McCormick, but... You know that don't we? We talked a lot about Jaskrimski, so we don't need to spend too much more time on that. But Michael Harris at five—that's definitely an aggressive ranking. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, we just talked about it. That I really, I really don't see how you can put a guy like that above Reynolds and Mullins, who have had multiple back-to-back solid seasons. Of course, we did put Julio at number three, and he made his debut this year. But several other factors in his favor. I mean, first of all, he was. Either what the number one, number two, maybe number three overall prospect in baseball coming into this year. So, you know, he wasn't coming out of the blue. And Harris wasn't completely out of the blue either, but he was not as hyped of a prospect as Julio. And also, it was just a more well rounded, sustainable, projectable game that we saw out of Julio Rodriguez. And the stats really capture that. So, yeah, I'm glad we put him at three. I'm glad. MLB Network had him there too. Harris, definitely aggressive. It's funny that all three individual lists, me, you, and MLB Network, we we all agree that Luis Robert is the eighth best center fielder and that's where he belongs. No, obviously. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, it is time to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to another one of our top 10 right now lists. Uh, Logan, what do we got next? Well, up next, we got left field. So we'll wrap up the outfielders and... Then we'll head to the infield. So that's what we're looking forward to next, wrapping up the third outfield position. All right. Sounds good. We will hit you with that in a few more days. So stay tuned for that. See ya. Later.